Turn to John chapter 8, verse 12. That's where we're at this morning. John 8, 12. And we're going to cover from 12 down to verse 30 through our time today. And I'm just going to tell you, this is like what a, a part of the scripture to come back into. John 8, 12, like this first verse we're going to cover is one of the most impactful, important, large, like the weight of a sledgehammer kind of verses. It's a big one. So let's begin, shall we? We all on board? Okay. John 8, 12 starts by saying this, again, Jesus spoke to them. Now, I'm going to pause this right there. We made it five words in. It's probably time to pause, right? John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them. We say, well, now, who's the them? Who is in view here? Where are we? What's going on? Give me some context here, Braden. Well, I gladly will. The them in view here is a crowd of people that Jesus was having a lengthy conversation with. It goes back even into John 7, which you read back in the spring. Jesus is having a conversation with some folk during a large festival. It was called the Feast of Booths. Somebody say Feast of Booths. We talked all about that in the spring. Here's the quick crash course reminder on the Feast of Booths. It was a major, large, high holiday on the Jewish calendar. And what they would do is people of Israel would leave their homes during this festival for a week and they would leave where they lived and go camp out basically in like the wilderness or somewhere else. They would build makeshift shelters or tents or booths. It's like a camping trip for a week. Some of you seem interested. Some of you, I ain't doing that. But they would do that in commemoration of God in three specific ways. The Feast of Booths was about, number one, God bringing his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You remember that account in the book of Exodus? The Feast of Booths was to look back and remember that. God did this mighty work. His people were under the thumb of the Egyptians and he brought them out. That's part of what the Feast of Booths was for. The second thing, it was a reminder to the people of how God faithfully led the nation of Israel, or God led them, I should say, through the wilderness, through the desert, after he brought them out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness. They weren't up here in the city with places to go and hotels to sleep in. God faithfully led them and provided for them. That's part of what the Feast of Booths was remembering. And the third thing that the Feast of Booths commemorated was how God led his people Israel into the promised land. Got those three things? And one of the things that they would do, I learned this recently, toward the end of the week-long festival is in Jerusalem where the temple was, which was the focal point of Jewish worship, they would light three large candles. Now, I don't know what you picture when I say large candle, maybe like something on your grandmother's dining room table or something like in a chandelier at a banquet hall, like a big fancy to-do. They would light three candles around the temple that were each, each 75 feet high. How many of you, that's about 74 feet too high, right? If it's anything above how high you can lift your foot, it's too much. And so, yeah, they literally, some poor sucker evidently would lose a bet and or draw the short straw and they would have to go up on a series of ladders, what could possibly go wrong, to the very top to light these candles. And of course, they were so tall, so huge, and so prominent that they would shine forth for all the countryside around. You would see the light there. So light is in view here. And the light is symbolic, and it's symbolic of God. 
That's why they would light these candles. So it says in another place in scripture that God is light. That's just who he is. He's light. The first words that we have record of God saying in our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light. One of the things that happened, we talked about how God led Israel through the wilderness out of Egypt. One of the things God did for Israel in the wilderness is that he was with them and he appeared to them and went before them in a pillar of fire by night to light up their way so they knew where they were going. So light is in view. God is in view here. And it's with this context that Jesus is going to speak up and he's going to talk about light. Now you guys, being the very smart people that you are, all of you, yes, you, you guys know all about light. You know how it works. You know what it does. Light illuminates things. It brings things into view. It causes you to be able to see things more clearly. One of the things that light does is it lights up your immediate surroundings, right? Your immediate vicinity. You, you walk into a room, you turn the light switch on, and then you can see. And I got thinking about this. This is just a, a fun sidebar. Years ago, myself and a few others actually that are here, we used to help out at a youth group in Burt's Corner. How many of you know where Burt's Corner is? Good. Most of you. And at this youth group in Burt's Corner, there were like quite a few kids that would go to it. And of all of the like fun games you can play with a large group of kids, the kids at the Burt's Corner youth group always wanted to play one game, this infernal game called Murder in the Dark. It doesn't, it's not actually as grisly as it sounds. Uh, and it had its own set of rules for this game, which aren't super important. But here's the gist. You would play it in the basement of the church with all of the lights out, every light out. And I know where your mind is going. Like what could possibly go wrong with a bunch of teenagers in a room with the lights all out, right? Okay, all of those things that you're picturing pretty well happened during Murder in the Dark. So it was complete carnage. The lights, I don't know why we ever agreed to play it with them, but anyway, the lights would go out, it's pitch black. Church basement is its own level of pitch black, okay? And when the lights went out, mayhem broke out. At the best case scenario, the kids just disregarded the rules and went and made their own rules and played their own game at best. But it was like worse than that. Kids would like go down the hallway back here to like start necking and stuff. And people would, oh yeah, people would like, every time we played, someone would run into someone else and get hurt. Or my personal favorite was over on the side wall, they had a water cooler. And every time we played Murder in the Dark, which was seemingly every week, someone, you could hear it, wham, into the water cooler, and the tank would fly off, and the water would slosh everywhere. It was an absolute gong show. But one of the things in Murder of the Dark is periodically you would flick the lights on, and regrettably, all of that stuff would come into view. Everything that was happening right around us that you could hear but not see, it was in view. Okay, so that's what light does. It lights up what's right around you. Another thing light does, as you know, it lights up stuff that's coming ahead. How many of you have a vehicle? Your vehicle has, or my land, I hope it has, headlights. If it doesn't, that's a whole other conversation for another day. But your vehicle has headlights. And when you're driving in the dark, you want to see what's coming ahead. You don't really care so much what's like over here or over there when it's dark out. You want to see if there's like a deer in the road up here. You want to know ahead of time that it's coming, not like when you arrive upon it. So remember that light lights up what's right around us and what's coming ahead. And you and I need light. Okay, that's not a shock. 
We were not made to function in the dark. Certain insects or animals and that kind of stuff, they've got, I'm not a science guy, but they've got, or a biology guy, they've got like the infrared night vision kind of eyes. We haven't got that. Even if you're in a room with the lights out and you're getting used to the dark and you're in there for a while and it's okay, you still can't see everything in clear detail. We, we do not flourish in the darkness. And yet here we are, this will not be a shock to any of you, we live in this world that is incredibly, incredibly dark, amen? There's all kinds of darkness in the world. There's pain in the world. There's wickedness in the world. There's confusion in the world. These things are darkness. Sometimes the darkness is external to you. Hey, I didn't do anything, but something happened around me that was bad, such as, I don't know, Hurricane Fiona, right? For instance. Or someone did something to me or whatever that was wicked or bad. That's darkness. Sometimes, though, let's just be very honest, sometimes the darkness is internal. Sometimes it's our sin nature or our impulses or our wickedness or that thought that pops into your mind or that habit you can't seem to break. All these things are darkness. And what we do as human beings, since we were made to be in the light, we always in some form or another attempt to look for light. We attempt to look for some sort of remedy for our problems, for our darkness. Hey, I'm in this thing and I, it's uncomfortable. I don't like it, so I'm gonna try to fix it. That's why people all the time, all over the place, that's why people take medication sometimes. That's why people uh, have certain outlets that maybe they shouldn't have. They look for escape. That's why people grab the self-help book off the shelf. It's all uh, 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 an attempt to move past certain aspects of darkness in our lives. And if we're being honest, a lot of times they don't work super well, amen? When we try to escape the darkness on our own power, maybe there's a flicker of light for a second or a little while, but it never lasts, right? It never endures. It never fully gives us what we need. But then here comes Jesus, and look what he says. He spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. That right there is a monstrous claim, huge claim. We can read that and just skip on past it, whatever, but it's huge claim. If you could just, yeah, leave that slide right on there is great. When you look at what he says, I am the light of the world. When he says, I am, don't rush on past that. That's a claim to be God. A lot of people said, oh, Jesus never said he was God. Well, that's it right there because that phrase, I am, that is a phrase that God uses a lot of times in the scriptures as a way of identifying himself. It's a way of his self-expression and self-revelation. You can go all the way back to a place like Exodus chapter 3, for instance. God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and they're having a talk for a while, and God's trying to get Moses to go do something, and he's kind of being stubborn. None of us would do that, but Moses did. And uh, finally, he says, all right, okay, I'll go, I'll go do that thing you want me to do. He says, but when I do that, who should I say that I was talking to? Who should I say to the people sent me? Like, should I tell them that the fiery bush guy sent me? And God said, tell them, them, I am who I am. That's how he reveals himself, how he identifies himself. And Jesus then comes along and latches onto that as well. You need to understand, first and foremost today, Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just a smart teacher. He was not some enlightened being. He claims to be God. We just got to grapple with that claim. Whatever you believe about Jesus this morning, I recognize there may be differing viewpoints even in the room, but that's who he says he is. And so what he's saying, if you look at it in connection with, with this verse, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. 
That means if you want to make sense of your surroundings, you know what, remember we said that's what light does. It lights up what's right around you. Or if you want to make sense of what's coming ahead in your future, God must be involved. Okay, that's what this phrase is saying here. You need God. And it's not just some loose affiliation to God, right? A lot of times we try to play that stunt. People in the world, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. We know what the scripture says about that. That's, that's great. Even the demons believe and they shudder. And I want to do a little better than the demons up in here, okay? It's not just some loose, oh, I came from a Christian family, or I don't know, I went to a Christian wedding or a Catholic funeral one time, and God was mentioned there, so I must be good. No, it's Jesus. It's an attachment to Jesus. This is why other religions, by the way, don't work, because whatever vein or form or whatever of God that they take, they miss out on this. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You notice he doesn't say, I'm a light. I'm one option that you can choose, but there's many paths to heaven. There's many great ones. He says, I'm the light, singular. There's one. His name is Jesus. And he's the only light. It says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. It's very clear what he's claiming here. So let's just pause for a second and capture, just, just try to wrap our hands around that for a sec. We can't really do it. That verse is so huge. What Jesus is saying if, is if you want to make sense of your life, this confusing world, this painful life where all kinds of wickedness and darkness happens, if you want to understand your life, why you were here, what kind of life you're supposed to be living, you need him. That's what he's saying. And too often, I've done this, we just lean on our own understanding. When you come into a difficult circumstance in your life, you say, oh, well, here's what I think I should do. Or here's what my experience has taught me about this. Or the worst one of all, here's what my feelings are telling me to do. They're the worst guide in the world, just so you know, your feelings, the worst. And what we should be doing, what we really need to be doing is saying, okay, I've just come into this thing. It's dark. I don't understand what's happening. I don't know what to do. Jesus, who are you? Jesus, who do you say I am? Jesus, what do you have for me? What do you want me to do? That is the heart. That is the posture that we should be taking because he's the light of the world, okay? Same with our future, right? If light lights up what's coming down the road for us, that's true of Jesus in this way as well. You need to know that your life is a journey. We're not just here on some random whatever, like we're going somewhere. There's a destination that we're heading toward. You're on the train and it's moving, right? And it's going to lead you one of two places. There are not a lot of stops on this train. And we'll talk about that later on. But the key of that whole thing is, do you know Jesus or not? That's what's going to determine where you're going to end up in your future for your eternity. So the key in all this, just this part of one verse even, the key is Jesus. If you want to understand your life as God created you to live it, you need Jesus. If you want to understand and experience the future and the eternity that God has for you, you need Jesus. Somebody help me and say, you need Jesus. You're getting it. Look what he continues to say in verse 12. Just this one verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, just so you know. That's why I'm talking about it for like an hour so far. He doesn't just say, I'm the light of the world and moves on. Look what he says. Whoever follows me will not walk in, what? Darkness. Darkness, but have the light of life. That's super exciting for me. That right there is an invitation and it's a promise from Jesus. 
He just double dose right there. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Okay, we've identified already the darkness is all around. The world is super dark. On our own, we're all walking in darkness. But he says, if you walk with me, if you roll on with me, you will not walk in darkness. So first of all, right off the hop, what that means is that Jesus is greater than the darkness. You need to understand that. If he can come along and claim, hey, if you stay close to me, you will not walk in darkness. Well, that must mean that he is greater than it and can overcome it or else he's not able to keep that promise, right? And if we really get to know Jesus and we really take a look at Jesus and spend time with Jesus, you will find that to be true. Jesus is greater. Somebody say Jesus is greater if you believe it this morning. No matter how dark the darkness in your life, Jesus is greater. Jesus is bigger. The light of Jesus Christ shines brighter. I'm just telling you that today. If you've never tasted and seen that, that is the truth. And th the way that Jesus ultimately demonstrates this is through his death and his resurrection. That's our whole deal up in here. The death and the resurrection of Jesus he died on a cross to pay for your sins. He lived a sinless life. We have not done that. He died to pay for all of your sin, all of your shortcomings, all of your darkness that you're grappling with and walking in. He sacrificed his life so that that could be dealt with in you. He was buried in the ground, but he rose on the third day. He proved once and for all, the darkness is great, but I'm greater. I'm busting up out of the grave and I have overcome. The victory belongs to him. He is greater. I keep saying it and saying it over and over again. So that should and does bring us hope. It brings us encouragement, right? Because we don't have to live this life in the futility of sin. How many of you know sin is just futile? You just go in it and it's discouraging and it brings death. You don't have to remain in that because of Jesus. You don't have to stay stuck on the hamster wheel of shame and self-destruction because of Jesus, because he is greater than the darkness. Your life can change. That pattern you're in can be broken. That wickedness can be curbed because Jesus is greater. If you had a nickel for every time I said that, you'd be starting to get somewhere, right? Bad things and dark things are still going to happen all around you and sometimes to you. Sometimes you will perpetrate those. But we will stay afloat because he's greater, because he's the light of the world. And in a world where we're not sure of anything, that's the world I live in anyway, in a world where we're not sure of anything, in Jesus Christ, you can be absolutely sure and certain of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the power of God because he is the light of the world. This whole thing, though, hinges on whether or not we're following him. See that? Whoever follows me. And we're going to talk about that some more as we go. But it all comes down to having a heart of, I choose you, Jesus. I'm going to walk with you. I desire you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to worship you. That is the focal point here. That is the crux that we'll come back to. We are covering more than one verse today, so we're going to move on in a second. This whole deal, Jesus is inviting you to a whole life here. He's not promising that he's going to make you rich or famous or all your problems are going to disappear, but he's inviting you to a life of life, light and freedom and fulfillment and a life with a future. Is that good news for somebody today? Yes. 
And here's what we can do. When we're faced with this large, massive claim that Jesus makes, we have to respond to that, right? And what we're going to see in our text and what we see often in the world is that there are two common responses. When you read Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That massive claim, there's two common responses to it. One of them is to resist. Somebody say resist. The other, which we'll talk about at the end, is to surrender. Somebody say surrender. surrender. And each choice, each response has consequences, which we'll discuss. But let's talk about the first one. The first response to this claim by Jesus is that we can resist. Again, you're very smart people. You know what resisting is. But I looked up the definition. To resist is to exert oneself so as to counteract or defeat someone else. In other words, you go out of your way to try really hard to not bend to that person, to not yield to that thing. You're just trying. You're digging in your heels. That's resisting. And uh, I have recently learned a new manifestation of resisting. As you know, I'm a dad now. Pray for me. Lori's fine. She doesn't need any prayer. I need it, though. No, you can pray for both of us. And uh, Eleanor's two months old now. I don't know where the time has gone. I certainly don't know where my sleep has gone. But one of the things that Eleanor does, and by the way, she's a great kid. She's super cute, has her mother's looks. Just get that on record. <laughs> gift, gift of encouragement. <coughs> um, she's happy. She's healthy. It's great. She actually does sleep pretty well in the night. One of the things we learned about her very early on, though, is that she hates to be burped. Anybody have a kid that hated to be burped? Okay, I'm not, I'm not an outlier there then. Right from when she was, like, days old, obviously she can't, like, stand or walk or anything, you would go to burp her, you'd be feeding her, and you'd sit her up or, like, do her on your shoulder. She will stiffen up like a board, and she will arch her back like this, and so you're trying to lean her forward so you can burp her, and she is so resisting. She was literally doing that to me like an hour ago here in the, in the church, by the way, and she cries, and she howls, and, and you literally just have to wait until she plays herself out, and then her body relaxes, and then you can burp her. It's partly annoying, partly super cute and hilarious, so I've really come to understand this a little bit better about resistance. Again, please pray for me. This text that we're going to now mosey into is full of resistance. Okay, this claim has been made by Jesus, and the people we're going to see here are just digging in their heels. They're not willing to bend. They're not willing to budge on who Jesus is. There's a spirit of resistance on these people. So let's just kind of pick our way through verses 13 and onward. Jesus makes this claim, and so the Pharisees in verse 13 said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What that is, is that's the quick, lazy attempt to just 
say, ah, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to put the work in to consider what you have to say. So I'm going to look for some convenient excuse to just write you off immediately. That's what they're doing. That, Jesus, ah, you're just talking about yourself. Because that actually was in the Jewish law, right? There's places in the Jewish law where it says, if you want to make a, a testimony or uh, you're telling a story like in court or something. The way that it's corroborated is by the testimony of two or more witnesses. So these guys say, oh, Jesus, you're just talking about yourself. Therefore, it's not true. They're trying to just quickly write him off. You see that? They're resisting him. And if that doesn't sound like our day, I don't know what does. In our day, maybe you've had this in your life or you've heard this in others, People will look for the quickest, easiest, sometimes lamest excuse to write Jesus off because they don't want to consider him. They don't want to put the work in to actually dig into, oh, could this be true? Could he be real? Could he be someone important and effectual in my life? This is where people say things like, no, there's no God. I don't believe in God because there's suffering in the world. I just can't get there. And I say, oh, okay. Like one equals the other, I guess. Okay, sure. Well, that's just a line people throw out because they don't want to wrestle through this. This is where people say, the science, the science disproves God. No, I don't believe in this because I read somewhere that some guy once said in a science textbook, there's no God. Okay, you, you appealed to the science, good for you, okay. So this is where people say, well, I prayed once and God didn't answer my prayer, so he must not be real. Or if he's real, I don't really like him very much. And he clearly doesn't like me very much. These are just the quick attempts that people make to write Jesus off because they don't want to consider him because they're resisting him. And the, the answer that Jesus is going to give in the coming verses is essentially this. He says, excuse me? Last time I checked, I don't answer to you is what he's basically going to say. He says, I'm God, whether you like it or not, whether you understand or not, whether you want to bend or not, I'm still God. Your opinion of Jesus does not change who Jesus is, okay? Because he's God. So he comes on to say in verse 14, he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going, right? Again, he says, I'm God whether you like it or not. I don't have to answer to you. In verse 15, he says, you judge according to the flesh. In other words, these people that were opposing him, he's saying, you're just trying to look at me through a human lens. You're not looking at me through a spiritual lens. This is a spiritual matter. They're just looking on the surface and writing him off. And he's saying, you're not even considering me right. Jesus says, I judge no one. A lot of commentators think what he's saying there is, I don't do that. I don't walk in that same way. I don't judge the way that you people do. Now, interesting, pause for a related sidebar. All the way up, you don't have to like go there on the screen or anything, but way up in verse 26 that we're gonna read, Jesus goes on to say, I have much to say about you and much to judge. Well, doesn't he just say here in verse 15 that he's not judging, I judge no one? It almost seems like he's saying the opposite, but he isn't. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, verse 16, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So right there, he makes a pretty staggering claim. It's not just me who judges. God is the judge, okay? So he says, it's not just me, aka I will be, but it's I and the Father who sent me. What he's saying is, I came from the Father. That's a claim to be God. Just saying. 
It says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. We talked about that. Verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So not only is he putting himself on the level of the Father, he's saying, I came from the Father. I used to be where the Father was at. This is God language all over it. You can't miss it. So you would think then, oh, okay, he's like dropping some pretty good hints here. Surely the people are going to get it, right? No. In verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answers, and it doesn't look like much. This would have been a huge burn on these guys. He answers by saying, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. That would have been a scathing thing to receive if you're the Pharisees. Because these guys absolutely prided themselves, puffed themselves up on the fact that, hey, we know God. We walk with God. We know the, the word and the laws of God. We are righteous before God. And Jesus says, actually, you're, you don't even know him. You don't even know him because you don't recognize me. Because you're resisting me. If you really know God, you would know me as well. I can just like see their teeth grinding when he says that to them. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21 goes on to say, Jesus is going to kind of turn the heat up a little bit here. He says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Okay, like he's getting there now. You're going to die in your sin, he says. Where I am going, you cannot come. He's warning them very sternly, unless something changes for you, unless you stop resisting me, it's not going to end well for you. They must get it now. No. The Jews said in verse 22, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Oh, if he's going away, means he's going to put an end to himself. Back in those days, there were some, it was not uncommon for certain philosophers or, or leaders of the people, sort of what Jesus kind of appeared to be. Sometimes as an act of martyrdom, they would, they would take their own life just to kind of cement their legacy and prove that they were not kind of bound by the, the chains of society. They said, oh, is Jesus going to do that? Actually, you can almost hear the happiness in their voice. Is he going to do away with himself? Because then we won't have to deal with him anymore. They're almost happy that he might be going away. Look what Jesus says. He said to them, verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. That's God language. I am from above, he says. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He's, he's just he's laying it right out there for them. I told you that, it, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, it's not unless you believe that there is a God, unless you are a moral person, unless you go to church regularly, unless you drop some money in the offering bucket, unless you say grace before the meal. No, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Let that sink into our hearts today. Don't answer out loud, but do you believe in Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you surrendered to Jesus? He's laying it right out here for us. So they said to him, as he's turned up the heat, he's up the ante, he said, they said to him, who are you? 
There's no such thing as a dumb question, right? Can we just say that? There are such things, though, as not great questions. There is a difference. And these guys here, it's not a super great question. And I'll tell you why. Some people debate the nature of what, when he says, when they say, who are you? Some people say the tone of their voice there was more of the puff their chest out and say, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you? Okay, if that's their attitude, they're clearly not getting it. They're still resisting him. They're not submitting and surrendering. Some scholars hold on the other side. They say, no, they were maybe legitimately asking Jesus, who are you? But if that's the case, I'll tell you why that's not a great question for them. Because it still shows their hard-heartedness. Because look what Jesus says in the rest of that verse. He says, I am just what I have been telling you from the very beginning. Like you read what we've read in the Gospel of John so far, line after line, page after page, Jesus has been revealing himself to these people. He has been testifying about who he is to these people. Excuse me. He has been demonstrating his power and doing things that only God could do before these people. And they're still not getting it. So when they say, who are you? He's like, what do you mean, who am I? I've been telling you for all these pages and verses we've read so far. He says in verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but look what he says, he who sent me is true, right? There's that judging, he who sent me, that's God language. Jesus is gonna judge the world one day, friends. But he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Oh, I've heard from him. That means I not only am on the level with him and I've been where he's at, but I've like been close to him. I've heard from him. I have a relationship with him. That's what Jesus is claiming there. But they still don't get it. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, which is really sad because he literally has said in pre- previous verses that we've read today, the Father who sent me, the Father, the Father, the Father, and they don't understand that he's speaking to them about the Father. What's going on here? He goes on to say in verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's a prediction and a prophecy about his death. Jesus was lifted up on a cross where he died for our sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Then you're going to get it. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. God language. And he who sent me is with me. Relational language with God. He has not left me alone. This is like one of the most staggering ones. Jesus says, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. If that isn't a claim to be God, I don't know what is. How many of us always do the things that are pleasing to God? Obviously not. He's claiming to be sinless. He's claiming to be perfect. Only God is sinless and perfect. Clearly setting himself up here as this. Thank you, by the way, for letting me go on the harangue through those verses. You have to see what's happening there. Let's capture all of that, 13 to 29. Jesus is clearly positioning himself as God. He is clearly revealing himself as someone who is significant, who is to be trusted and listened to and obeyed and followed and worshipped. And these guys are meeting him with resistance at every turn. 
They just will not bend. They will not consider. They will not accept. That's resisting. And before we just look at these guys like they're a case study of people that lived 2,000 years ago, this could very well be a case study of our generation too. We're the very same way, friends. People resist God all the time. Whether it's because of pride or unbelief or we can harden our heart, the Bible says, or it's just our sin that we're in or the sin nature that we wrestle with, we resist the Lord all the time. Let's just like come down off our high horses a little bit today, right? Whatever high horse you rode in on here this morning, cut her down. And when we occupy this spirit of resistance, when our heart toward God is in this vein, there are consequences for that. If you could flip back just to verse 12 at the beginning, it says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What he's saying is if you're following me, here's the good thing you're going to have. Well, the opposite stands to reason as well. What he's saying is if you're not following me, you're in darkness. It's right there. So if you're hearing this and you're not a Christian, I love you. I'm not saying this to insult you, but you're in darkness. Because Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And you are on a path, if you don't know Jesus, where your destination will be wrath and punishment, more darkness for eternity. And that is not what the Lord wants for you. Remember, this is an invitation. This is not a condemnation. Here now is what the Lord really put on my heart to share with you guys this week. Most of us in the room are already Christians. Most of us do know Jesus. Most of us have been saved by Jesus. Most of us have grabbed hold of this verse and the invitation that Jesus is making, and we have believed it. We've accepted it. So let's just lay down some ground rules here for a second before I go on to say what I'm going to say. If you're a Christian, you're saved, period. Thumbs up if you agree with that so far. If you're a Christian and you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Thumbs up if you agree with me so far. It's not like, oops, I slipped off the edge. Guess I lost it. No. What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? So we can't lose it. We're not going down that road. And God has grace for us when we stumble. Thumbs up if we agree. But... Is it possible for us as Christians to resist Jesus in our lives, in our walk? Of course it is. Is it possible to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians? Of course it is. I'm very adept at it sometimes, unfortunately. It's not the same kind of darkness in like a salvation sense. It's not, oh, if you're in a place in your life right now where Jesus is wanting you to do something and you're not doing it, you've lost your salvation. No, 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 no. But I think this promise, and I think this warning, I think that applies to us as well. Because Jesus has a life for you. He has light for you. And when we occupy a spirit of resistance against the Lord, we are not living in the fullness of that life that he has for us. We are not living in that path that he's carved out for us. So like, yes, 
You guys are saved. You're in church on Sunday morning. Awesome. Keep, keep coming, all right? But what else might Jesus be asking of you, of, of this guy here as well, in the rest of your life, in the rest of your walk? I guarantee, I guarantee, I'm not claiming to know your heart. I guarantee there's some of us up in the house this morning that know the Lord wants you to do something and you're not doing it. Guarantee. Actually, because I'm one of them. I still haven't stopped biting my fingernails. We've talked about this. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. Yes, you're in church. That's great. But like, what might the Lord be asking of you with regard to something like your spiritual disciplines, your, your reading the word or spending time in prayer, things like that? Maybe he's asking you, hey, it's time to invest more in that and you're resisting. What is the Lord asking of you in your marriage? What is the Lord asking of you with regard to how you treat your kids? What is the Lord asking of you with regard to your finances? Yep, went there, thank you. What's the Lord asking of you with regard to the way that you treat other people? What's the Lord asking of you pertaining to your physical health? What's the Lord asking of you pertaining to that area of your life? You know what I mean when I say that area, people. You're not stupid. When we resist, when we hold back, when we won't bend, we're walking in some kind of darkness too. And sometimes what we can do as Christians, we can get kind of smug. I'm doing just great. We deceive ourselves. You're wrong. You're just wrong. If you come into your mind, for instance, you see something in the Word of God that's a clear instruction from the Lord, and you say, I'm not doing that, I'm not under that, but I'm doing just fine on my own, you're just wrong. I'm just telling you, you're just wrong. And I'm wrong lots of times, but you're wrong. That's darkness. That's deception. You say, oh, well, what does it matter? I'm saved. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. That's a whole other conversation, okay, because the tree ought to be known by its fruit, right? Be that as it may, like, yeah, okay, but what about the here and now? What about the life that Jesus has carved out for you right now? What about this promise of the light of life that you can have right now? And you want to resist him? I want to resist him? It doesn't make any sense, friends. Sometimes we as Christians will spend a lot of energy, a lot of effort, make a lot of excuses and try really hard. And what we're actually doing is keeping ourselves out of the freedom that Jesus is trying to give us. Doesn't make any sense. Some of you guys, again, I'm not insulting you. Some of you guys are in darkness this morning. Some of you guys are lacking joy this morning, lacking peace this morning, are restless this morning. And it's because you haven't surrendered. That is the second part. That is the second response. We're going to like start winding this thing down today. That is the second response we can make. Let's like put a positive spin on this. I don't want to beat you down. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The common response we see is resistance. That's the one we fight against all the time. But the better response, the other response is to surrender. Somebody say surrender. Make sure you're still with me. That word surrender, you are smart, you know what it is. The word surrender means to yield to the power or authority of another. 
to cease resistance. In other words, you give it up. You get over yourself. You let it go. You quit fighting against God and you align yourself to God and allow him to work through you. That's what surrendering is. And I love that this section of scripture ends in verse 30. Very simply, it doesn't say much, but it says, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So there was a lot of resistance he was facing, but that wasn't universal. Some people got it. Some people understood. Some people took him at his word. Some people said, you know what? I'm in. And that is essentially at the heart of a spirit of surrender. Where you get down off your high horse and you say, all right, that's it. I'm yours, God. And even back, like we have verse 12 on here again. Whoever believes in me, whoever follows me, these are words that all swirl around this concept of surrender. And when we're talking about surrender, when we're talking about following Jesus, when we're talking about believing in Jesus, it's not just some head level thing. It's not just some churchy metaphor. Oh, I surrender. No, it's something you actually do. It's actually a thing. It's actually a verb, an action, an activity that you do. It's where you consciously come to a place where you make the decision to let go of whatever it is that you're holding on to and shouldn't be, and you give it to God. That's surrender. And some people hear the word surrender, and where their minds go is weakness. I'm not surrendering. I'm a strong, independent person. I'm, I, I don't surrender to anyone. I don't yield to anyone. Well, guess what, friends? In reality, when we're talking about God, surrendering is not weakness, it's wisdom. Because Jesus said in another place, it's Matthew 10, 39, he says, if you really want to have life, if you want to know what it is to live, you've actually got to lose your life. In other words, you've got to give it up. You've got to stop fighting me. You've got to get over yourself. And then he says, you'll find your life in me. That comes from letting go of the reins and giving it up. So again, I will say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have never come under the grace and the authority and the invitation of Jesus Christ, that would be a great first step for you, just saying. He loves you. He died for you. He has a whole life for you and eternity for you. And that comes through faith in what he's done for you. That comes from surrendering your life to him, repenting, turning from your sin, denying yourself and going after him. Jesus is inviting you to do that today because he loves you, because he's for you. Again, most of us in the room are Christians. Again, what area or areas, maybe there's multiple, we're all works in progress, right? What area in your life have you not totally given over to the Lord? The invitation is right there. Give it up. Surrender. Even when it doesn't make sense. What do you mean, God, you want me to do X, Y, Z? Great. Do it. Even when you think that you should do something else, trust him. Even when your feelings, the worst guide in the world, try to lead you somewhere else, surrender to Jesus Christ and then tomorrow when you wake up, surrender to him again. Surrender again and again and again and again. That is the spirit we need to have. That is the attitude and the life that we need to live. 